Yo, Paul, we got any new comrades of the week? We sure do. So who we got? We have Habitual Line Stepper, LBR59, and CRGOT7. Looks like J-Drone says, funny and unconventional. Now I know for sure Donald Trump is on steroids. The 111 says, I can't tell if stupid or genius. This is the best political MMA podcast I've ever heard. It's also the only one. However, it might be the best podcast I've ever heard or the worst. Either way, it's intriguing. If this isn't glowing endorsements, I don't know what is. Am I right? 100%. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So this week, Paul has a topic that he's been thinking about for a while, and we decided, okay, don't just present it to me. Let's just run it live on the podcast and see what you got. So what is your idea? What is your topic? My topic is if politicians were MMA fighters, who would they be? And why does this idea interest you so much? We always make parallels between politicians and celebrities, politicians and singers, politicians and fictional characters like superheroes. I figure why not use real life examples like MMA fighters? But why MMA fighters? I would say I don't know enough about celebrities to make comparisons outside of the superficial. Cartoon characters and comic book villains can only go so far before you really have to dig through their Wikipedia page and either say I got nothing or Well, it looks like their background has been retconned a bunch of times, so now I'm not sure if this is even an apt comparison. But MMA fighters are, better or worse, always quote-unquote authentic. They're real. They'll give you what's on their mind, and you could even see it from their fighting styles. Yeah, there is some gamesmanship and some promo, but when they get in the ring, it is a true expression of themselves. So there is that. And I guess also you're writing or you're thinking about this from what you know. And maybe there's other people, their understanding of politics comes from MMA or things they know, or politics has always been too complicated for them. So maybe they're like you and explaining it in MMA terms will make a lot more sense to them. So maybe this will be a valuable lesson or topic for other Pauls out there. Let's hope so. Let's hope I make some good comparisons. Who's the first one you want to make a comparison with? First one that I want to make a comparison with are both people that I admire and I like a lot. I would say Bernie Sanders is most similar to Nate Diaz. Why? So at first glance, you don't think they have a lot in common. One is from Stockton and the other is from Brooklyn. So right away, we have a West Coast, East Coast difference. But if you delve just a little bit further, you see they have a little bit more similarities 
than differences. One of the things that defines Nate is that he has always gone against the conventional system. It's presented to you one way. Dana White has always said, if Nate would play the game just a little bit more, he'd get so much further ahead. And Bernie has always marched the beat of his own drum. He'll run as an independent, but he'll caucus with the Democrats. And they both have older siblings that do the same thing they do. Nate Diaz as Nick Diaz, his older brother, and Bernie Sanders as Larry Sanders, who is also a politician in England. This is not to be confused with Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm, who plays Bernie Sanders a lot on TV. Completely separate. Larry David is a very successful multimillionaire creator of two very well-known sitcoms, and Larry Sanders is a Green Party politician in England. But I think Larry David is somehow related to them. Yeah, they're cousins. Yeah, they found that out later. So Nate and Bernie have the older brother thing going. They both buck convention. So another thing they have in common is they always have the same talking points. Nate being, I'm not paid enough. I'm not treated with enough respect. You have to give me my share. Whereas Bernie's talking points have always been universal health care. The system is rigged. And you need to pay people a living wage. So in their own ways, they're both talking about human dignity and equity. Correct. In their own professions. One is a lot more profane than the other. But I have no idea if Bernie Sanders was dropping F-bombs when he was in his 30s. I'd love to hear Bernie drop F-bombs. That would be refreshing, I think. Another thing that Bernie and Nate have in common is they were never, quote unquote, the champions. So Nate has never won a title, and Bernie, outside of being a senator, was never president. But they're always perennial fan favorites. And you won't find a lot of people who are in the middle with either one. There's either an intense like or an intense dislike. With Nate, he has the respect of his peers, but not always within the same weight class. And you know definitely amongst the fans, it's either, I love Nate, he keeps it real. Or he whines too much. He hasn't done enough. And with Bernie, it's always, I love Bernie. I love his talking points. Or I don't think Bernie knows what he's talking about. And his promises are unrealistic. I don't think they've always been perennial fan favorites or people's champions. I think that's more recent, right? In the case of Nate, it really happened after he fought Conor McGregor. And for Bernie, it really happened after he went against Hillary Clinton in the primaries. So they both had to have that rival that was even more controversial than they were. And they came out from that more famous than they were because they were the ones who were willing to challenge this thing that was larger than life. Not only that, but you go back enough and you realize they've always been this person. It's just they've never had a microphone and a spotlight presented to them. But you look back, you won't see Nate Diaz transform from this meek, timid person who never really liked to challenge or get confrontational with fighters. Even going back to the Ultimate Fighter house, he was that guy that took off his shirt and challenged people to fights. And Bernie has been talking about the same thing since he was in high school. They just became more famous now. They are the underdogs, the perennial underdogs and people, and not all people, but a certain number of people love to root for the underdogs. And those are the fans of Nate Diaz 
and Bernie Sanders. They are the bad news bears in a way, the lovable losers where they haven't won the title, but they always keep getting close. Maybe they will get the title one day. I don't know. But they got that bad news bears effect where they're not the number one most powerful or most popular, but that's what makes them great. Yeah, you look at, let's say, most recent examples. Nate Diaz was supposed to fight Dustin Poirier. It didn't happen. But before that, Nate Diaz says, we should fight for the 165 title. I know it's not there, but fuck it. Why don't you go ahead and make one for me? So winner of this fight will get to say they're a champion. Why not do it? What's stopping you? And when he's not presenting a new weight class, he's asking to be cut so he can go ahead and do something else. Bernie recently went after Amazon. Who does that? Not just a politician, but even other businesses don't go after Amazon. But not only did Bernie go after them, he introduced the Stop Bezos Act. Who does that? He went after King Kong. Correct. And in this case, King Kong stepped down. Well, they're both the same in that way. They go after the big dogs and they don't give a fuck. Bernie gave the equivalent of the Stockton slap to big businesses. And he dared them to do something about it. They're the underdogs who represent a voice that isn't often represented. In a way, I feel like we're doing something similar where Nate is like, let's make a 165 title so I can be the champion of that, where we made a leftist MMA podcast and we're the number one podcast in that area because we're the only one. <laughs> and the 50 people who listen to this, they're like the bad news bears, man. There, there isn't that many of us. And people who might be into politics won't be interested necessarily in MMA. And MMA fans, when they do listen to an MMA podcast that has broader topics, they're often presented politics that tends to skew more to the right. So we're this weird Venn diagram that may very well end up being a very small slice of a bunch of things coming together, but that voice needs to be represented. There's a lot of voices that need to be represented just because they're not the loudest voice doesn't mean that there aren't others like them. I like to think of our fans as the bad news bears. Speaking of that Venn diagram, right now, unfortunately, fighting is associated with right-wing culture. You look at those fuckheads, uh, the Proud Boys. Uh huh. So the Proud Boys are associated with violence and fighting. And I want to take that back because fighting is still something I believe can be used for good. But right now, it's used 100% to incite fear and fear-mongering. And they shouldn't have that. They shouldn't have a monopoly on fighting. They stole your catchphrase. Fighting solves everything unless you're a... You're a dickhead. Yeah. (laughs) And to be personal, I used to rock that black and gold trim polo. And after they took that, I can't wear it anymore. I couldn't even donate it. I just threw it away. I tore it to shreds and I... Put it in my trash can. How is your fighting solves everything different from their fighting solves everything? They actually want to incite violence and get into fights. My view of fighting is that understanding violence and the preparation for it makes you a better person. And it should only be used as a last resort. Musashi didn't go around slashing people because he felt they slighted him. Even his book, The Book of Five Rings, it's all about 
preparing and understanding and cultivating yourself and improving as opposed to being an actual sword fighting manual. So you're not talking about then fighting as a final product. You're talking about fighting as all the things that lead to the preparation for fighting. Correct. But the alt-right just took that last section and then they said, yeah, we should always fight. We should always be ready for violence and we should be the first ones to do it. One of the things Bruce Lee said, and I'm very careful when I use Bruce Lee quotes because most of the things he said, he didn't say it. He's quoting somebody else, but he doesn't attribute quotes. And so it ends up getting attributed to him. But maybe somebody else said this, but I only remember Bruce Lee saying this particular line, which is, it's fighting without fighting. So he's basically saying the same thing you are, where you're training and doing all this stuff so you don't have to actually fight. It's more about what that preparation does for you and how that is a way of improvement. I think the benefits of training for fighting outweigh the actual end product. It's the fact that you're willing to stay disciplined enough to commit to improving yourself as well as having a better mind-body connection. You're focusing more on the front end, which is all the preparation and all the good things that can come from that preparation before the fight. And the fight is the last resort. That's the end point. Whereas for some of these violent extreme groups, violence and the fight is the start point. That is where you should start. And then the aftermath and the chaos that ensues afterwards is what they're looking for. How long do fights last? A real street fight is what, 45 seconds maybe? And even let's say in a sanctioned setting, a non-title fight is 15 minutes, less if you're an amateur. A title fight is 25 minutes, and that's for the world title. You are training a lot longer than you are actually fighting. If you fight first, what's there afterwards? Have you learned anything? Have you become a better person? Or now are you at a place where you're worse off than when you started? It gives you no time for self-reflection. If we look at it as a pie chart, then what you're saying is the pie chart is obviously, even when you think about it literally in a professional fight, so much of it is skewed toward the preparation. So the thing that you spend the most amount of time on naturally becomes the thing that you benefit the most from. And the actual professional fight is just par for the course as something that just happens as the end product. But that's not where you're going to get the most benefit. No, and you see this overwhelmingly in fighters that unless they get paid, they're not doing it. There's zero benefit to them. One of my old instructors, John Machado, talked about growing up with John Jock Machado and how when they were kids, they would just train all the time. But it wasn't until they got to their mid-early teens where they said, we could actually hurt somebody with this. We need to be careful. If all you understand is the violent aspect, you will never understand why it was developed in the first place. You just see it as a tool as opposed to understanding why it was developed. So you have more of a martial arts perspective, which isn't at all what any of these violent right-wing extreme groups have, which is the martial arts aspect of it. I would go a step further and say, 99% of them can't fight. They don't know how to. They've never been trained properly. They just know how to attack you in groups and incite fear. But if you broke down their technique, how they move, 
how they stand, how they throw, how they hit. They don't know what the fuck they're doing because no one has taught them. They just see the end product and they say, oh, I could emulate that. So what they're really doing is disguising political violence culture, which goes back since the beginning of politics to even the brown shirts in Germany to fight culture that not only goes back to ancient Greece, but also to ancient Asia. Even though it was really violent, it was still sportsmanship, self-defense, and a way of understanding yourself. So they're trying to conflate these cultures together as being the same thing, whereas violence, what you're saying is violence isn't the same thing as a fight because they don't know how to fight. They just know how to incite violence. And in violence, you don't actually have to know how to fight. You don't have to know about proper punching technique or how to do a stance. It's just about creating the most amount of chaos and damage as possible in a group setting. And you're doing it for political means, meaning you're doing it not for honor, but you're doing it for some political agenda that you have. Correct. And even if you look at pop culture as a reference, it's always been you don't fight unless you absolutely have to. Well, true martial artists will always train, but they won't always fight. And in modern martial arts, they won't fight unless you pay them. Otherwise, they will just train. This is the opposite where they won't train and they're just looking for reasons to fight, whether they get paid or not, or whether there's a real good reason or not. So it's diametrically opposed to each other. It just gets conflated because both has punching and kicking in it. Yeah, it's not the same. So what other comparisons do you have between Bernie Sanders and Nate Diaz? So Bernie will identify himself as a democratic socialist. There's not a whole lot of them. Nate Diaz comes from that Caesar Gracie team, and they refer to themselves as a scrap pack. They're intensely loyal. There's not a lot of them, but you've heard their names, and you know they're out there constantly fighting, and they will always have each other's backs. Bernie has a smaller group of like-minded progressives, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Keith Ellisons, Ben Jealous, and Ro Khanna. They're scrappy. Bernie has the socialist scrap pack. Another thing they've both been able to utilize very well is social media. One of the things people don't realize is that Nate Diaz was able to take advantage of that very early on because he knew that he had more Twitter followers than the actual UFC at one point. And he would send out a tweet and it would drive people to take action more so than if the UFC sent a tweet. So he was able to utilize that to his advantage. After he beat Michael Johnson, he called out Conor McGregor when it shouldn't have been on anyone's radar. Bernie Sanders realized early on that social media is where the youth were, so he went for it. He started those Facebook live chats. It got hundreds of thousands of views with no marketing. When he did a sit down with Bill Nye, that got 4.5 million views. He actually went out of his way to hire the former producer for Now This. And now he's able to dominate social media. Whereas a lot of these other political candidates, whether they're on the right or the left, don't really have that insight or foresight, I should say, to do that, even though he's the one out there dominating. Their, their social media game is strong. What other politician do you have? Another person I think of, and it seems obvious on the surface, but I have Ronda Rousey and Hillary Clinton. 
So they were both the first in many ways. Hillary was the first woman to be nominated as the Democratic candidate for president. And Rhonda is the first UFC women's champion. So one of the things that I think made them the same is how they handled their losses. When Rhonda lost, you did not hear a peep out of her. She was not granting any media access to her speaking. Neither of them would be caught dead speaking to the press after their losses. And it shows a lot about how a person handles adversity that reveals their true character. With Rhonda, there was that blackout after she got obliterated by Holly Holm and how she dealt with the Amanda Nunez loss. With Hillary, it was not only the loss to Donald Trump, but to the backlash whenever she would try to come back out and speak on behalf of other Democratic candidates. So they're both obviously sore losers. Exactly. There's always been a sense of entitlement about them, that they felt that the world owes them something and that they're the heir apparent. They've willed things into existence. At the time, the UFC had no women's division. It was only strike force and maybe hook and shoot. Ronda willed it so that Dana would cave in and create a women's division. So, of course, they would feel that they're bigger than their respective arenas, whether it's politics or fighting. And they got pretty far. They willed a lot into action. It's just that they met adversity. It shows a lot about a person, about how they handle that adversity. Do they dust themselves off and keep moving forward? Or do they change directions completely? Well, there was similar criticism to both women about their preparation. For Rhonda, it was about not evolving with the sport. Maybe she needs to change her tactics or training. Maybe get a new trainer and evolve and learn and really train with the best. And even after she lost to Holly Holm, Everybody begged her to change up her training, and she didn't. She thought, I'm going to stick to the plan. There's nothing wrong with the plan. Because the plan did get her very far, but flaws were being exposed, and she didn't change with those things. And the same thing with Hillary. A lot of people were saying it was a mistake not to go to every state. It was a mistake to put Tim Kaine as her vice presidential nominee. It was a mistake to say that everything is fine and we need to continue as business as usual. It was a mistake to double down on capitalism when it looked like the party was changing. A lot of things were changing and she wasn't evolving with it. She was sticking to the same plan that she had when she first ran against Obama. Like Tim Kaine was promised the vice presidential nomination way back then and she did not change her plan at all. There's a lot of things we learned after Donna Brazil's book and also after all the email leaks was that her campaign had a plan that goes back to when she ran against Obama and they didn't change it at all the second time around. So her loss to Obama is similar to Ronda Rousey's loss to Holly Holm in that they didn't change anything or evolve after that loss. And even without evolving, they still somehow believed that they were unbeatable. At the end of the day, both people had too many yes men. Well, Joe Rogan and other media commentators talked about this where Ronda Rousey, when she challenged Amanda Nunez for the title, Amanda was the champion, yet Ronda was getting all the press coverage and everybody was talking about it as 
Ronda being the favorite when all the insiders knew Amanda was going to kick her ass and all the insiders knew that Ronda has some serious flaws to her game. And that directly parallels everything people were saying about Hillary leading up to her loss against Trump, that there were some serious flaws and a lot of insiders were already picking Trump to win. But it was like the whole Hollywood effect when WME bought the UFC. WME was a talent agency and it still is. So all these Hollywood execs and agents came and they just couldn't believe or imagine that Ronda Rousey would ever lose because they were banking on her winning. All their plans were contingent on her being the champion, all their growth plans for the UFC. And when she didn't win, all their plans went to bust and they're just kind of having to wing it as they go. And the same thing with Hillary, all these people around her and all the Hollywood people of the Democratic Party and the DNC had all their plans based around her winning and did not believe that she would lose at all. I mean, you look at our current political situation now where we're looking at 2020, who's going to run? It's either people who are too old or people who are too young because they were banking on eight more years to groom people like a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker or a Beto O'Rourke. But now they're in a situation where they're scrambling to try to get some old people to come back or to move young people up to run right now. And that's clear evidence. Wait, how come you don't have anybody lined up? And if she were to win and win eight years, then they would have been in a perfect position, but they didn't have a contingency or they didn't even allow the idea in their mind that they could have lost. And the same thing with the UFC and Ronda Rousey. Another one that might not seem obvious or clear cut, but I think has a strong case is George St. Pierre and Barack Obama. Okay. So both are considered classic examples of what you would think of when you think of their profession. George St. Pierre is a professional fighter. He shows up on time. He wears suits. He's respectful. He will go in, show up on weight. He will fulfill all media obligations before, during, and after the fight. And then you never hear a scandal about him outside in his personal life. And it's always been that clean-cut guy. And you could say similar things about Obama. Policies aside, you never had to worry about Obama going overseas and talking to other world leaders at a conference. Is this guy going to make a fool of himself? Is he not going to represent us well? He's always that guy when he had to give a speech. You never worried like, oh, God, I hope he doesn't mention so-and-so. I hope he doesn't blank out on fill in the gap. And you could always count on him to be professional on time. And there was no scandal about Obama. What was the biggest thing that came out the White House? His tan suit. And they both carry the weight of things greater than them. For GSP, it was not just the UFC, but professional fighting and Canada. Barack Obama had to carry not just the United States, but all of Black America. They both look the part, but they don't necessarily act the part. So people focus too much on appearance, how they look in front of the camera. Are they saying the right things? But if you're a real follower of the sport, I would say GSP does not act the part. 
especially the way he fights and the same way with Obama. A lot of the establishment Democrats focus too much on Obama acting presidential, but in policies, he wasn't as nice as he appeared. And same with George St. Pierre. He didn't fight as nice as he appeared. I would compare GSP's fighting to Evander Holyfield in that Evander Holyfield always came off as a super nice guy, religious, all this stuff. And especially when he fought Mike Tyson, he appeared to be the more noble, honorable person. But any boxing insider and hardcore fan knows if you've watched all of Evander Holyfield's fights, he is dirty as hell. He is the master of headbutts. And there's even a moment before Mike Tyson bit his ear where Mike Tyson damn near gets knocked out by a headbutt. That doesn't mean that Evander Holyfield deserved the ear bite or that Mike Tyson is a better person than him. Mike Tyson is awful as far as human character. But it just doesn't mean the way they act outside is the same as the way they carry themselves in the ring or in actual things they do in their jobs. And the same thing with GSP where there was the time he got caught putting Vaseline all over his body. He didn't do it. His trainers did it. And it ended up the commission finding that it wasn't done intentionally. Fine, whatever. But there was that. And if you watch all of his fights, he constantly grabs the shorts. One of the reasons he's so good at takedowns is he grabs the shorts. You look at his match with Michael Bisbing. Before the final takedown, you see GSP grab Michael Bisping's shorts so hard that he snaps his cup. So that's why Michael Bisping didn't have a cup for the rest of the fight, which completely distracted him. I'm not saying that the outcome would have been different, but that's how fucking hard he grabs the shorts that he rips these steel tie cups that are like damn near impossible to rip, yet GSP did it. Because that's how hard he was yanking on those things to get the takedown. And Barack Obama, super nice when he does his rounds, even the way he treats reporters. But foreign policy-wise, Libya, Yemen, drone attacks, it's not so nice. And if you do a little bit of a deeper dive into their careers, GSP is always a professional fighter and he talks about the need to be respectful, and sticking together. He never called for fighters to unionize. He never stuck up for the undercard and prelim fighters. And as much as Obama represented the black community, you look at how he handled the Flint, Michigan water crisis, and it shows a complete reversal of what he says and what he actually does. They both appeared much more honorable and noble than they were. And because of that, the media actually became fans of both of them, which isn't good. The media shouldn't be fans of anybody. They should just tell it like it is. And so when GSP grabbed the shorts of Michael Bisping, media didn't say anything. When GSP does anything that seems dirty, like with the lubing of his body, they downplay it because they like him. And the same thing with Obama. They didn't hold him up to task like they should do with every president. And so now that they're putting Trump to task, they look much more biased because 
they were much more favorable to Obama. If they were much more critical of him, then it wouldn't look nearly as bad right now. It wouldn't look nearly as biased to half the country. Speaking of Trump, I think the best comparison to Trump with an MMA fighter is none other than Chael Sonnen. And they're both right wing. I think that story kind of writes itself. So let's start with some of the obvious talking points. Both men have used their personalities to build up their brands. Chael has talked his way to multiple title shots that he did or did not deserve. He got two coaching appearances on The Ultimate Fighter. He got a grudge match of sorts against Tito and Bellator. He got an ESPN gig with Ariel Hawani. And he somehow found a way to enter into the Bellator heavyweight tournament. Donald Trump has used his personality and more or less his dad's money to build a real estate empire of sorts where he essentially just licenses out his name. But he's also used that to appear in movies, commercials, endorse pyramid schemes, sell stakes, have his own reality show, a fraudulent university, and now the presidency. They've both talked their way into big title fights. Yes, and they also have criminal records. So go into that because both of their criminal records are similar in the area that they got busted in. So they were both busted in crimes related to real estate of all things. So not only was Chael Sonnen guilty of a real estate scam, he was also in money laundering. He pled guilty in 2011. Yeah, but it somehow never gets brought up. He's also been busted for steroids. That's true. And as we both know, Donald Trump is definitely on steroids. He just doesn't work out. He just takes the steroids without working out. I guess now we have a definitive answer of what happens if you take the steroids, but you don't put in the work. So if you don't know what we're talking about, in our first episode, we were making a lot of guesses and we were wondering, hey, what if the secret to Donald Trump being able to talk so much, never sleeping, hitting all those states and talking about being so alpha is because he's on steroids. Obviously, he's not ripped, but you could take steroids and not work out. And all that ends up happening is you gain mass. And maybe that's also the secret to his womanizing. He's on exogenous testosterone. And that's what Chael needed. He needed more testosterone to compete. Another not-so-well-kept secret is... Both of them will never let the truth get in the way of a good story. How many times has Chael been caught telling a lie? The media will call him on it, and he just ignores it, and he continues on with his speech. Even when Trump is taught, that's not true. That's not how the economy works. No, that policy won't actually affect the people that you talk about. He doesn't let it stop him. He'll continue. Well, they've both learned from pro wrestling. Trump being a Hall of Famer in WWE which I think gets downplayed too much. But no, WWE and the way that all works is something that Donald Trump learned a lot from. And a lot of smarter writers, like even Matt Taibbi, has talked about that. But because mainstream society thinks so lowly of pro wrestling, they don't want to give it its due credit in not only teaching people like Chael Sonnen and Donald Trump, how to do politics, 
but how accurate it is in predicting pop psychology and how people think and what people are susceptible to. I think because people don't want to believe that we're like pro wrestling fans. They don't want to believe that they could see fake fighting and think it's real. But straight up, we see fake news and think it's real. It's one for one, the same reality, because they both play off of pop psychology. And Sonnen too. He straight up has admitted that his whole shtick, everything he does has been informed by his love of pro wrestling. They're both playing the heel. Except they're both doing that heel fan favorite thing. I think in addition to their pro wrestling background, it's worth mentioning that both Chael and Donald will go with what the crowd thinks of them. They're more or less populous because... If they believe that the crowd will eat up a certain talking point, they'll hammer that down. They don't really have principled beliefs in the way that, no, this is what I 100% believe is best for the country, the company, my career. It's always going to be, well, what do you want to hear? I'll go with that. They go for the cheap pop. They don't have actual principles. They're always beta testing to see what's going to get that crowd pop, that crowd noise. That's why Trump still has rallies. What president had rallies after they won? Trump does because he needs to keep seeing and hearing what the audience reacts to. And whatever they react to, that's the thing he's going to go for. That becomes his principle. And that's why somebody who started out non-religious has started changing a lot of his views to more religious views because his views will be whatever he thinks will get the most pop. Yeah, they're both always out talking and promoting. And what is the product they're promoting themselves? They're not representing a party or an ideology or a philosophy or principles. They're only promoting themselves. But with that being said, at this point, I would rather have Chael as president than Trump. Because at least Chael can fight. Well, not only that, I can count on Chael to go somewhere and not turn on the news and say, oh, God, what did he say? Well, you might say that anyway with Chael. But what I will say is, If I watch Donald Trump, half the time, I don't know what he's saying, and it rarely makes me laugh. But every once in a while, he'll say a tweet, and it's such a good troll, it makes me laugh. But most of the time, it's kind of like C-level comedy, whereas Chael actually does make me laugh a lot, and he is actually very easy to understand. So if they were both pro wrestlers, they talk about something called mic skills, And just because they're all pro wrestlers doesn't mean that they're all equally good. That's why it's so stupid when Joe Rogan says, oh, Brock is good on the mic because he's from pro wrestling. And it's like, no, in pro wrestling, in WWE, Paul Heyman has to do all the talking because it is understood that Brock sucks on the mic. So there's this illusion that all pro wrestlers must be good on the mic and they're not. They all have varying degrees of mic skills. So if... Donald Trump and Chael Sonnen were both in the WWE. Of course, everybody would recognize Chael Sonnen has much better mic skills. And in fact, even though Donald Trump was a Hall of Famer, that was more honorary. He came out a lot, but Vince McMahon or the other wrestlers had to do a lot more of the talking. And Donald Trump was much more limited in what he said because he wasn't as good at talking as them. You watch a rally and it might take him. 30 minutes to an hour to finally get to something 
that gets a pop. Whereas somebody with good mic skills will hone in on a pop within seconds. You compare him to Stone Cold Steve Austin and it's night and day. So with Chael, it'll be a lot more entertaining. I don't know if it'll be a lot less scary, but we'll have more of the entertainment factor. I would love to see how a sit down with Chael and Putin would go. I think it would go well. I think Chael would like him. Will we avert World War III? If we went into World War III, I don't know if it'll be with Russia. And here's the thing. World War means the world is involved. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the superpowers that started. It's just that it becomes a world war when the superpowers get involved. So who knows where it starts? But my skills aside, Chael tends to be much more of a conservative, a classic conservative, whereas Donald Trump is more of this weirdo right wing, you know, not conservative, not libertarian, not a moderate. It's this new Renaissance Fair, Portlandia, right? Proud Boys, like weirdo faction of right wing that's rising right now. And so you have what used to be the smallest faction of the right wing party, which wasn't the traditional conservatives or the Tea Party. It was just like their weirdo grandkids who were still right wing, but instead of listening to country western or even heavy metal, they were listening to weird EDM, anime music. Now they have the White House. That's the weird thing. And now everybody has to fall in line with that ideology, which is more of a mixed bag. And you don't quite understand or get what it is. And it might change week by week, which speaks to internet culture. And that's something Chael Sonnen very much is plugged into, is he's always keeping up with the trends because that's what a good heel, a good pro wrestler needs to do. And I know Chael has seriously considered after retirement to go into pro wrestling. If he goes into pro wrestling, do you think he carries over his persona or he starts all over again? He doesn't have to start all over again. And that's the beauty of what he's been doing is that he's been branding himself for so long because he can ask for so much more money because you're not just getting him, you're getting this character that's larger than life. And you're getting this huge fan base. If Chael going to WWE is Donald Trump going from TV to politics, then Donald Trump from TV brought over already a built-in audience of fans too. He didn't have to start from scratch like most politicians do who go from a nobody who has to build up a fan base. Donald Trump already had a huge fan base. With that said, you have Nate and Bernie Sanders, Rhonda and Hillary Clinton, Barack and George St. Pierre, Chael Sonnen and Donald Trump. Which pairing of those would you say most accurately is the current feel of the time? I think there are two answers to that. I think it's Bernie and Nate and Chael and Trump because... From the Bernie and Nate side, they feel that they're getting screwed over and the system is rigged. From the Chell and Trump side, it's that it doesn't matter what the truth is. It just matters what their narrative can be spun. I would love to see Nate Diaz slap Donald Trump. I would pay good, good money for that. 